Welcome to episode three of the Inside Elections podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, what do the latest fundraising numbers tell us about the state of the presidential race, who made a splash in House and Senate fundraising, and which losing candidates from 2022 have the best chance of winning their comeback in 2024? And I'll tell you where to find the cheapest gas in Ohio. Buckle up. Hello, I'm Nathan Gonzalez, and I just got back from Indiana's 3rd District. I'm Jacob Rubashkin, and I am on my way to Delaware's at-large district. Hey, everyone. I'm Erin Covey, and I just got back from Greece. Not sure which district I was in <laughs> for their legislative body, um, but I did go to like one of the old Senate houses at the Agora in Athens, which was super cool. So we're not talking about Athens, Georgia. You went to actually no. Greece. I think that's where yes. Joe Biden yeah. got his start when he, he first got to the Senate. It <laughs> is. Yeah. <laughs> he was He's been in back office. there around 500 BC. <laughs> So a little differently in Indiana's third district, uh, that's where my wife's family is from. And so our kids get to spend time at grandma's house in a real yard with real grass. And uh, but I also got to go to the Adams County Fair and follow, I think, three congressional candidates running for Jim Banks seat. Uh, I tweeted about it. I, I should write about it a little bit later, but it was fun to, to get out and get out in the Midwest. Before we get into our three big stories, what are some news events that folks shouldn't miss? Erin, uh, go first. Yeah, so we have some redistricting updates in Alabama for those of y'all who have been following along with that saga. Um, so the Republican-controlled State House and Senate each passed new congressional maps, though it appears fairly likely that neither map will pass federal court scrutiny. So the legislature was required to produce a map with two districts that are either majority black or something quite close to it. That was the exact quote from the court order. And so the two new proposed maps from the Republican-controlled state legislature include second districts that are respectively 38% black and 42% black, which isn't particularly close to a majority. And so a lot of folks are expecting that these maps probably will not hold up in court, but we'll see what happens. There's a, there's a joke about Alabama and math in there somewhere, uh, but I won't go I won't go fully there. But Republicans are taking a risk that if they don't draw a map that is in compliance, then the court's going to draw it, and it's probably yeah. not going to be as favorable as what they want. Uh, Jacob, what's uh, what should folks not miss? So New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who is a Republican, announced that he would not seek a fifth two-year term in office. This is the third big race that Sununu has passed on in the last couple of years. If you remember, he was recruited very heavily to run for Senate against Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan. He said no. There was a lot of speculation that he might run for president. He said no to that as well. Now he's not running for governor either. Uh, this makes the uh, New Hampshire the best pickup opportunity for Democrats in terms of gubernatorial races. They've already got two candidates in the race, uh, Executive Counselor Cindy Warmington and uh, Manchester Mayor Joyce Craig. Republican field is also already growing. Uh, former Senator Kelly Ayotte, former State Senate President Chuck Morse, and Education Commissioner Frank Edelblut are all 
already running for the GOP nomination. Now, is Ayotte running? Because I know there was some confusion on Twitter yesterday. That, that's true. She has she has promised a big announcement um, in in the coming days. I think uh, the the expectation is she should she is going to be running. I, I'll, I'll be uh, more more precise on that. I don't think we have an official announcement yet, or at least not a real one. Um, but okay. th- that's the expectation. Good to know. And with that, with that news, and with the Dave Reichert news in Washington State uh, a couple weeks ago, this is turning out to be some very interesting gubernatorial races. This is kind of a down a down cycle in terms of the number of governors' races, but it's actually starting to, to be very interesting. And I want to make sure people don't miss something that Jacob you tweeted about uh, recently, and that is "Never Back Down." The Ron DeSantis friendly super PAC aired an ad using AI to mimic former President Donald Trump's voice, uh, to mimic the criticism that he had of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that was previously just on social media and in a press release. Now, the American Association of Political Consultants has condemned that act or condemned using AI in that way, but I have a feeling it's something that that, that's not going to be enough to prohibit campaigns or to deter campaigns from using this in the future. So we're all going to have to be careful and watch for those uh, tactics in ads in the future. Yeah. And this is actually the second time that a DeSantis uh, entity or affiliated group has used AI. If you remember, the DeSantis campaign put out a video a couple days or about a week or two ago that included AI-generated images of Donald Trump hugging Anthony Fauci, uh, scenes that didn't actually take place uh, and that were not listed as uh, artificially generated. In fact, the caption on the screen actually said, a real Trump. Uh, when when those images were displayed. So this is uh, quickly becoming a pattern for that part of the political world. It's probably the case where if you have to put real, that probably means it's not. <laughs> like that's a, That might be a tip-off. Uh, that might be a tip-off in the future. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. Uh, The GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional. As I've said before, the program is not just a sponsor, but I'm a graduate. And in one class, we had to make campaign plans for the candidates in the 2004 Illinois Senate race. At the time of that race, it was Barack Obama against Republican Jack Ryan and actually used some of the research that I did for that class project to turn it into an op-ed that ended up getting picked up by the Wall Street Journal. So I was able to use it in in multiple places. Uh, So please click on the link, check out what the GSPM program has to offer. Let's dive into our top stories. Our first story, campaign fundraising and the state of the presidential race. So uh, we we got our first real look at the financial health of some of the major uh, presidential campaigns this cycle uh, when those groups had to file their quarterly fundraising reports with the Federal Elections Commission. Uh, Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis posted the largest haul among Republicans, but his filings also showed a number of pretty significant red flags. Uh, While Trump and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott uh, reported having the most money left to spend in the bank 
at the end of the quarter on June 30th. Uh, meanwhile, Mike Pence, the former vice president and former New Jersey governor Chris Christie, uh, posted some pretty middling numbers uh, that raised some concerns about their campaigns as well. And then on the other side of the aisle, President Joe Biden uh, raised a combined $72 million uh, through all of his various uh, party committees and the DNC, a pretty substantial haul that put to rest some concerns about the president's fundraising ability heading into his reelection. So, Jacob, that word combined that you said is doing a, a lot of work because the way that candidates are reporting numbers these days is out of control, in, in, in my view, that sometimes candidates are reporting entities that shouldn't even be um, that should be independent of the campaign, but they're lumping them together to have a higher fundraising number. So talk about that challenge a little bit. Yeah, so there are a lot of different things going on here, especially when it comes to presidential campaigns, right? Every one of these candidates more or less has a super PAC that is also supporting them. And those are legally uh, distinct and independent organizations that aren't allowed to communicate with the candidates privately, at least, and can raise unlimited sums of money. So you hear a lot about that DeSantis super PAC we talked about earlier uh, and how much money they have, $130 million or something like that. Uh, and that is a separate group uh, that is uh, ostensibly unaffiliated. We all know in reality uh, they they are all working toward the same goal. But um, you know, th those are the super PAC sides. Every candidate has one of those. But even just looking at the the candidates themselves, right? In presidential races, it's not just about the uh, particular candidates. Uh, principal committee, right? In a congressional race, a candidate might have one committee through which they raise money. And you look at that number and you know the whole story. But in presidential races, what we find is that candidates have a number of different entities under their umbrella, not just a principal campaign committee, but victory committees and things like that, uh, that are often on different reporting schedules. And so it, it becomes a much more complicated process to come up with a uh, sum total for, for a candidate's fundraising. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, President uh, Joe Biden said he raised $72 million in the last quarter, right? But his principal campaign committee only raised about $20 million. So where did that extra $52 million come from? Well, it came from the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, which is the, the main organ of the Democratic Party. And because Biden is the president, it is part of his operation. Uh, it also came from 50 different or actually 51 probably different victory committees uh, that are joint fundraising committees with the uh, various state democratic parties. So every single state, uh, be it Wyoming or New York, uh, has entered into an agreement with the Biden campaign to make a joint committee that can also accept campaign contributions. And so uh, all of that tallied up gets to that $72 million number. Not all of that has actually been reported because some of those committees are on a monthly schedule as opposed to a quarterly schedule. Uh, if you also look at the Donald Trump campaign, right, they came out and they said, we raised $35 million. But their filing actually only showed raising $17 million into their principal committee. Where did that other $18 million go? Well, it went to the various uh, Trump victory committees and other PACs that he's set up, uh, some of which aren't even paying for campaign expenses, they're really there to pay for the president's or the former president's burgeoning legal bills. Right. So Aaron, what stood out to you if we bring, you know, talking about this presidential race, what stood out to you in terms of weak or strong fundraising among the candidates? Yeah. So I think it's pretty straightforward, like with what Jacob said. Um, I think 
the warning signs that Jacob had mentioned about DeSantis's fundraising, I think, were mostly the fact that he was spending so much this quarter and his burn weight rate was pretty high. And so that coincided with some news about his campaign having to lay off some staffers um, as they're concerned about building up their war chest ahead of a very competitive uh, campaign in the coming months. And so um, I think there are some warning signs there. However, he's still raising more than any of his competitors at this point. Um, and so it doesn't mean that he is his campaign is over. It just means that um, they're going to need to do some restructuring ahead of the primaries. Because spending isn't necessarily bad, right? Tim Scott's campaign spent a lot of money, but they were spending on future TV buys, right. uh, which will you know, be useful, <laughs> more useful in the future than, uh, than ads or than staffing, staffing currently. Um, I went back and tried to compare apples to apples, even red apples to red apples on fundraising. If you put that Biden 72 million, that joint combined number into perspective, I believe four years ago, President Trump at, at the, the second quarter of 2019 raised more than a hundred million uh, and so in one way, Republicans could say, oh, Biden's struggling and he, he's not doing as well. But Trump lost <laughs> the 2020 race. Right. Like just because you're raising more money doesn't mean that you're going to win. And to me, the best thing that Biden can do uh, to get reelected is to do a good job. I mean, he, you need the money to run a campaign. But ultimately, if if enough voters don't think that the country's headed in the right track or they feel secure, they feel strong about the, the direction of the economy, then there's almost no amount of money that Biden's going to be able to raise that's going to convince people otherwise. Yeah. He also has a pretty lean campaign operation right now. He doesn't have a ton of staffers on his payroll. He's not spending a lot on ads at this point in the cycle. And so um, I think that'll those numbers will mat matter a lot more the closer we actually get to the general election. And he doesn't have anywhere close to the same primary that Trump is facing. And yeah. Jacob, you mentioned those legal fees that Trump is taking some of that campaign money and paying for uh, legal fees. And, you know, there could be, it looks like there are going to be more indictments coming uh, down, down the road. Yeah. And I think Nathan, to your point and Aaron, to your point about the, the concerns about DeSantis, right? I think this is, uh, this is a big deal because it's part of a larger picture, right? If DeSantis were doing well in the race, if he were rising in the polls, if he were getting favorable reviews, um, and he came out with this campaign finance report, I think people would be reading it very differently. But it's the fact that his campaign had that bumpy launch, has been on a, on a slump for the last several months, has really seemed to be in a rut that when it comes out that not only is he spending a lot of money, uh, but he's already tapped out a lot of his top donors. He's already raised a significant portion uh, that he can't touch in the primary election um, and that he's having to let go staffers. It just kind of snowballs into a, a larger narrative about the direction his campaign is headed in. And that's why we've seen uh, that, you know, be very explicit about doing a reset. I mean, this guy's been in the race for, what, five weeks, and he's already doing a, a reset of his campaign. He's talking to CNN after a, more than a year of completely stonewalling traditional media. Uh, clearly, they recognize that they have to make some substantial changes uh, in the campaign at this early stage stage in order to remain viable uh, moving forward, despite the fact that, uh, as they are quick to tell you, they're raising more money than anyone else in the field. So let's quickly do uh, pick one candidate from the second, third, or fourth tier and their fundraising number and something that stuck out to you. Uh, which, Aaron, which one candidate? 
Yeah. So um, one specific quirk of this cycle is that the RNC's debate requirements require candidates to have a certain number of raw donors. So that's not like a specific amount fundraise, but a number of individual contributions. And so a lot of these second and third tier candidates are trying to find creative ways to reach that number while still potentially actually losing money um, in the long run. Um, and so you've seen Doug Burgum, who is very wealthy, the governor of North Dakota. Not a lot of folks know who he is, but he has a ton of money. And so he's been able to spend a lot on TV really early on. So he has been um, incentivizing donors to donate at least $1 and the campaign will send them a $20 gift card. So he could potentially lose a ton of money um, through this scheme, but it will also um, enable him to reach the 40,000 donor threshold that he'll need to hit in order to make the debate stage. And so I think there's some questions about like how legal this is. It's, it's murky waters um, and I'm not going to dive into that, but I think it's <laughs> interesting and notable what the links that these candidates are going just to make sure they can get onto that national stage. You, you can't buy votes, but can you buy contributions? That, we'll be figuring <laughs> right. that out later. Uh, Jacob, who stuck out to you? Yeah, I, I'll just say uh, if you're Doug Burgum's counsel or compliance officer, please, uh, my DMs are open because I'm very interested in the memo you had to write to uh, clear yes. that that scheme. Um, I, I think what stood out to me and not in a good way was former Vice President Mike Pence. He raised about $1.2 million, uh, which is a really paltry sum, especially for a former vice president. I think when he got in the race, there was a question that a lot of people had of, you know, what is his path? What is his lane? Who is he doing this for? Um, and even though he is in usually third place, though perhaps fourth place now in, in a lot of the national polls, there clearly is not an appetite among the donor base for a Mike Pence uh, presidency, let alone, um, you know, one that they're going to donate to. And so, uh, you know, I think he will make the debate stage. He certainly met the polling threshold, but he has not yet met that donor threshold, the 40,000 donors uh, necessary to make that first debate stage. And and so it's it's been notable to see some of these other uh, less traditional candidates or or candidates with, with a smaller footprint than a former vice president outraising him um, but that's something that he's really going to have to turn around if he wants to become a serious contender uh, to, to beat Trump and, and win the nomination. And speaking of lack of appetite among the donors, I think Nikki Haley's fundraising also you know, was very pedestrian. Um, you know, on one hand, she is an impressive candidate, a former governor, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, and But it, her, her, she just is, doesn't have that appeal to the donor base as a, compared to a governor, Ron DeSantis, for example. So uh, I think she's a serious contender, but she needs she's going to have to raise more money to compete, even with her South Carolina colleague, Tim Scott. All right, let's move on. Our second story is fundraising again, this time in congressional races. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 show you the money. Not, not show you, show me the money. Show me the money. Yeah, louder. Show me the money. So Nathan, what stood out to you uh, in these House and Senate reports that we got to look at? Well, the first thing is the Senate. I feel like a little bit of, in the words of former New York Yankees catcher Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again, because we have vulnerable Democratic senators continuing to raise millions of dollars, just adding to their uh, adding to their campaign accounts. And we have Republicans either 
struggling to raise money, or in some races, top tier Republicans not in races yet. I know that there's the there's the strategy the Republicans have where say, well, if we get wealthy candidates, then we won't need to compete as much as fundraising. But there's no guarantee that there's not a guarantee that Governor Jim Justice in West Virginia is going to be the nominee, or there's no guarantee that Tim Sheehy in Montana that we talked about on previous on the previous episode is going to be the nominee. And so if their wealthy candidates don't get in or are not the nominee, then we're back to what a similar what happened in 2022, where Democratic senators used their fundraising advantage. They were able to air more ads because they get the cheaper rate and they, you know, have a better chance of holding the majority. But uh, Aaron, what stuck out to you in the second quarter numbers, either the Senate or or on the House side? Yeah, I think my main takeaway was on the House side, which is that um, the Republicans who are running in competitive districts are actually doing a lot better than the Democrats who are running in competitive districts, at least this past quarter. And I think that is because of a very intentional strategy on the NRCC's part to direct more funds directly to the candidates themselves rather than to the committee. Because historically, um, Republicans, House Republicans have struggled in comparison to their Democratic counterparts in fundraising for these races, like we saw in 2022. a lot of times the Republican spending was carried by the super PAC, mostly by the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is House Republicans' main super PAC. And they were the ones who were doing the bulk of the actual spending on TV, um, which obviously was a huge help. And they were the Republican super PAC outraised the Democrats' super PAC a lot. Um, but those dollars won't, will not go as far um, when super PACs are spending them versus when campaigns are spending them. So the Republicans are definitely making a much more concerted effort to um, boost their candidates directly this cycle. And we'll see if that pays off um, and if that trend continues. But I think um, I'm pulling up a roll call analysis. Was this Herb's, House- Herb's story? Yes. Herb Jackson, yeah. please, if you all have not read Herb's <laughs> uh, breakdown in uh, roll call, please. It was a great story. And he, if you guys could see the spreadsheet that he puts together, it's impressive. But anyway, go, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah. So um, according to his analysis, which is based on the seats that we have rated as competitive at inside elections, um, the average Democratic incumbent raised 420000 during the second quarter. And then the average Republican incumbent raised 639000 in the second quarter. So that's a $200,000 difference. Um, pretty significant. You had um, three Republicans who are running competitive districts. Um raised more than $1 million this past quarter, and there were no Democrats who were able to hit that threshold. And so I think this definitely shows momentum on the Republican side. Um, We'll see if that continues. Um, Kind of in a reverse of the Senate situation, there's still quite a few competitive districts where um, Democrats have yet to actually announce campaigns yet, but they have um, potentially strong recruits that are in the wings. So we'll see how that evolves over the next couple of quarters. But um, right now, I think this is a good sign for Republicans. And I think those three million plus fundraisers were what? Michelle Steele and Young Kim in Southern California and Brian Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania? Yes, that's correct. And ironically, these are all Republicans who are relatively safe compared to a lot of their other counterparts. Like we have all three of these seats rated as likely Republican. And so they are already probably going to be in a stronger position than some of the other Republicans who are defending 
but in tough districts, right? And to me, those three are in a category, right? They're not in our toss-up. They're not in our toss-up rating. But if Trump is the nominee, which he's the, he's the front runner, but then as the general election progresses and he somehow implodes, those are the type of districts where their races could get very competitive very quickly, yeah. and they're going to need all that money in order to in order to defend themselves. Uh, Jacob, what, um, who, or what stuck out to you in those second quarter numbers? Yeah, I think there were a couple of things. Um, Nathan, you mentioned the the Republican strategy of finding wealthy candidates to run in these top tier Senate races. Um, you know, the, the the filing from Jim Justice really stood out to me. He raised a little over nine hundred thousand dollars. He did not spend any of his own money uh, on that race, and I think it is still an open question. Perhaps uh, more of an open question than some people who talk about this race treat it uh, about how much money of his own Jim Justice will spend uh, on on this Senate race. Um, you know, he traditionally has not spent a ton of his own money on his two gubernatorial contests. And so I think it's an open question. I also think that, frankly, it's it's not an amazing sum for a sitting governor who was the prized recruit of the National Party in, in his cycle. Um, and especially when you kind of dig into the details, he tapped a lot of max out donors. His average contribution was one hundred and seventy dollars, uh, which is very high, um, you know, to raise uh, nine hundred thirty five thousand dollars off of about five thousand donors. You got to have a lot of people who are giving uh, big checks. So I think it'll be interesting to see if he can. Uh, step up the fundraising game, uh, especially if the club for growth really does come in and spend $10 million against him, uh, like they have said that they will. I think uh, to Aaron's point, um, you know, to, to me, the the big thing was in a lot of these challenger races in California, where you have these well-funded Republican incumbents, uh, Democrats are struggling to raise money against Young Kim, against Michelle Steele. Uh, you've got candidates who raised around $100,000 for a three-month quarter in one of the most expensive media markets in the country, um, which is just not going to cut it. And, and so if Democrats want to regain some of that California territory back, uh, they're really going to need to step up the fundraising there as well. And one California Democrat that's not struggling to raise money is Senate candidate Adam Schiff, who I believe ended the second quarter with $29 plus million in his campaign account. Uh, that would not include a fundraising email that went out about, I think it was last week from Mark Hamill. Uh, if you don't know who Mark Hamill is, you are, I think, still allowed to listen to this podcast, but he would be Luke Skywalker from the Star Wars movies, uh, who is on, uh, on, uh, sent out a fundraising email for, for Adam Schiff. So if I can, if I can make one point that I hear every time, I feel like every quarter about, candidates running in longer shot races this time adam frisch running against lauren bobert now that was an extremely clo closest race in the country in 2022 uh, he put together 2.6 million dollars uh that and there's a but it's not a it's, it's a republican leaning district probably even more so in a presidential year but there's i could foresee frustration that well that money that's given to him would be better spent in in more competitive seats or more competitive districts, and and I just don't think fundraising is always a zero sum game. That there are some there are lots of Democratic donors who want to give to Lauren Boebert's challenger, who are just not going to be as excited uh, giving against John James or or some other some other Republican. But I I don't know. Maybe I have the wrong maybe I have the wrong view of of it. I'm you can you both can tell me if I'm wrong on that point. 
I don't think it's a zero sum game, but I think it is horrendous the amount of money that is being spent on campaigns at this point in general. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think that it's I don't think it's a zero sum game either. I think that so for, for some people, right, the act of donating is not um, it, it's not this kind of uh, you know um, very utilitarian. You know, I want to give my dollar so that it has the most impact in whatever sort of theater. You know, so it increases the number of you know utils um, by not udals, but uh, you know <laughs> units of utility um, uh, across the country. I think some people like to give money because it uh, makes them feel good and it makes them feel like they're doing their part. It's an expression. Uh, of of their political belief and and um and, and so there, there's more to it than just giving the money where you get the most bang for your buck. I, I will say though, I don't think Frisch's race is the best example of this uh, because we have seen that uh, that district has the potential to be highly competitive. So I, I would put that one perhaps in a different situation than you know whichever Democrat ultimately runs against Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, is going to raise an insane amount of money. Um, and and that I, I can understand the frustration, uh, especially when you do have these races that go underfunded uh, that end up very close as opposed to races that are awash with cash that, you know, end up in blowouts. And we had a whole barrage of candidates who announced this month, the beginning of the third quarter. Aaron, you wrote about uh, these a lot of these candidates for the newsletter. Uh, but tell us tell us about house rematches and what what's in store. Yeah, so we have a lot of familiar faces who are going to be on the ballot next year who ran for Congress in 2022. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see how these candidates do the second time around. There definitely are some advantages to candidates who ran and lost last cycle and who are running again. Um, they're better known now by voters, so they're not starting from scratch with name ID. Um, they're not starting from scratch with their campaign infrastructure. A lot of these folks are using the same teams that they used last cycle. They have fundraising networks developed already. Um, and so it puts them usually in the second time in a stronger position than they were in the first time. However, if they do lose again and run again, then they could run the risk of turning into perennial candidates who are just known for losing. So, um, but for the candidates who are doing running for their second time, I think that we have to make an important distinction there. These are not perennial candidates. These are candidates who a lot of time came very close last cycle, and they're hoping that they're going to be running in a better environment this cycle. They'll be able to maybe learn from some of their mistakes last cycle, and they could have a chance to win. So give it, uh, people can read all the names in your story, but just give us a taste here of some of the most uh, interesting or consequential rematches that, that are on the docket. Yeah, so I'll run through some of the recent ones. Um, so you had Rudy Salas in California's 22nd district. He just announced he's running again. He ran against David Valadeo last cycle, and that was one of the closest uh, the most competitive races in the nation. Um, and then you have Monica Trinnell in Montana, who is running against Ryan Zinke again. You have Tony Vargas in Nebraska, who is running against Don Bacon again. You have Tom Barrett in Michigan, who is not running against Slotkin again because she is running for Senate. Um, so he'll probably be facing Curtis Hertel, who looks like the likely Democratic nominee at this point. Um, but since he was just on the ballot in this district last cycle, he's definitely in a stronger position. 
And Jacob, which rematch is getting you the most excited? (laughs) Um, That's a good question. I think that uh, there are uh, any number that have the potential to be really interesting. I think out in New York, um, you know, again, we've talked about this before. I'm partial to New York's 19th district because it's where I went to college. Uh, But in that race, uh, Mark Molinaro, the Republican incumbent, uh, probably going to be facing a, a rematch with Josh Riley, uh, the the Democrat who he beat narrowly uh, in in last year's election. There's the potential for a rematch down in New York's third district, um, in, or excuse me, in New York's fourth district between Anthony D'Esposito, the Republican incumbent, and uh, Laura Gillen, his Democratic opponent from last cycle. Um, you know, I, I think New York was. Uh, not the focus of a lot of Democratic attention last year and to disastrous results for the party, quite frankly. Uh, they didn't realize how much trouble they were in until the last couple of weeks. And so uh, with that renewed attention uh, and a lot more money flowing into those races, I think those rematches have the potential to uh, be quite interesting, uh, especially if Democrats successfully are able to redraw the New York congressional map to be more favorable to their candidates. And in we've talked a lot about Oregon politics, and we will continue to talk about it in Oregon's uh, in Oregon's fifth district. Uh, there could be a double rematch, or Jamie McLeod Skinner could be the Democratic nominee again against uh, Lori Chavez de Reamer. But one of the other, but uh, McLeod Skinner needs to make it through the primary. One of the other Democratic candidates, Janelle Bynum. Uh, previously faced Chavez de Reamer in two state house races. So there could be uh, a rematch there. I have to get something off my chest, though, in that one of the things I hate about how the committees and sort of the the press people handle these races of losing candidates to say, well, if they lost, then voters have rejected them. And, and, and that it's a, it's a, that's the end of the game. And that is, I want to bring up two examples in, in history that folks, depending on how old you are that are listening uh, in Indiana's ninth district in 2002, uh, Democratic Congressman Baron Hill defeated a Republican named Mike Sodrell. Sodrell ran again in 2004 and defeated Baron Hill. Now, Baron Hill ran again in 2006 and defeated Sodrell. They faced each other again in 2008. Baron Hill prevailed again. And well, one of my favorite ones is also in New Hampshire 1, New Hampshire's first district. 2010, uh, Republican Frank Ginta defeated Democratic Congressman Carol Shea Porter. In 2012, Shea Porter defeated Ginta. 2014, Ginta defeated Shea Porter. 2016, Shea Porter defeated Ginta. So all sorts of rematches with different outcomes. The bottom line is just because someone has lost a race does not mean that they can't win a future race. A lot of it has to do with the political environment and even sometimes things outside of the candidate's control. So I will, I'll get off my soapbox, uh, even though this is, <laughs> that's why we have this podcast, I guess, is to have a soapbox. But I was like, this is, ah, I just get so frustrated. You know, yeah, Nathan, no, I agree. You know, we were talking about kind of the California races, and you know, I think the one of the other rematches that is is going to be, I, I would wager, one of the most competitive races in the country is in uh, California's forty first district between Republican Ken Calvert and Will Rollins, who uh, won, uh, who lost a, a closer than expected race 
in in 2022. I think this is a good example, Aaron, to what you were saying about the the benefits of running for a second time. Right, last time uh, Rollins had to get through a primary. There was another Democrat in that race. It was a district that Democrats weren't really prioritizing, and uh, you know they had a lot of other opportunities in California they thought were more attractive. And now after he got within about six points of Ken Calvert last time, he's back. He's cleared the field. He's got the full support of the Democratic Party. Every, I think, Democratic member of Congress in California has endorsed him. He's raising more money than almost any other challenger in uh, not just California, but around the country, I would imagine, in the Democratic Party, uh, close to a million dollars in his uh, most recent quarter. And um, you know, I think that he's really, you know, probably the er example of of building on the success of last cycle's unsuccessful run in order to uh, launch an even more competitive campaign uh, this time around. So we'll see if he's able to get over the finish line. Uh, but I think that one is going to be pretty interesting as well. And if you uh, if you're a subscriber, you can see the ratings for each individual race in every news in every newsletter. And if you're not a subscriber, you can also still see the ratings at InsideElections.com. Uh, just move to the move to the right hand side. Uh, you just get the deeper, uh, in depth analysis in the newsletter. Uh, but let's uh, but let's move on. If you have any criticisms, feel free to just subtweet us, and I'm sure we'll run into it eventually. <laughs> no need to tell us directly. There we go. As long as as long as uh, Twitter still exists, right? We'll we'll be accepting those those subtweets. <laughs> And finally, our last segment, Look What I Found, where we highlight something new we've stumbled across. It doesn't have to be politics. It could be music, movies, television. You just never know what you're going to get with this segment. Jacob, what did you find? So I found a uh, great summer wine, uh, the uh, Espiral Vinho Verde from Trader Joe's. It's uh, bright, crisp, bubbly, green. Um, and uh, best of all, it is just $5 a bottle. You, you know, go. I went through a phase where I bought that quite a bit, like a couple of summers ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good wine. It's very cheap, too. Yes, Are there other things yes, going on? No, so. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That sounds confusing. <laughs> my, de- my deadlines I'm imposing on you? No. <laughs> this is a uh, while ago. <laughs> hey, Erin, what did you find? So, um, as I mentioned earlier, this sounds so annoying because now I'm turning into that person who just talks about their vacation constantly. Um, but I was in Greece for the past week, and so I haven't really been thinking about much outside of that. But um, while we were there, we did find a beach while we were kayaking to try to get to a different beach and accidentally kayaked like way past it and ended up at a beach where... Um, There were only a couple of other boats. It was not accessible by land, so it was incredibly peaceful and um, the kind of beach that you want to find. But, you know, if if you go to like Google Maps and you click on a beach and the reviews say, oh, this is a great secluded beach, you know, it's not going to be secluded because it means it's been discovered at this point. This was an actual secluded beach. So really enjoyed it. Um, I will eventually probably tweet some photos out there. <laughs> a little more difficult to replicate than Jacob's recommendation, but people yeah. can follow along. <laughs> follow if you're going to a Scopolos sometime soon, DM me. <laughs> and uh, on a very different note, I found the cheapest place to get gas in Ohio. Uh, actually, I need to give credit to my late father-in-law. Uh, we drive from DC to Indiana multiple times a year to visit family. 
and the uh, the Kent State University exit off of 76. There's a BP station. It's always cheaper than everything else, but it's also it's cheap, but it's also not one of those places that's sketchy that you feel like your credit card's guaranteed to get skimmed if you get if you get gas there. So uh, if you're driving across Ohio, uh, check out the BP station. We are not a sponsor of that BP station, uh, and we get no money from yeah. it. But it's a uh, yeah, we're open to it. If you're <laughs> if you're listening and you're the owner of that, uh, we're open to being sponsored by it. But um, so yeah, I know that's my that's that's what that's what I found. That's all the time we have. Uh, we got smarter about what the latest fundraising numbers mean for the presidential race and the fights for the House and the Senate and looked at emerging rematches in the House. And it's all in the context of a competitive 2024 election where the House and Senate majorities and the White House are on the line. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to these complex elections. Please go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to the bi-monthly newsletter. We have individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailor-made for association and corporate packs. Uh, If you liked this episode and you've already become a fan of all of these, uh, please subscribe, leave us a comment, uh, click, uh, hit the thumbs up on YouTube. We appreciate all of that. Uh, if you didn't like today's episode, let's have you email uh, George Santos. Uh, he probably he's probably he can't go outside of a certain radius of the city, uh, so he probably has some spare time to respond to you. Uh, we also wanted to thank our producers Alan Tazinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts, and our associate producer Conrad Tolosa. Thank you, and please join us again next time. Yeah.